Welcome to another Principle of Hospitality podcast. I'm your host, Sean DeVries. Thanks so much for tuning to this episode. This is a special episode and our last one of the year, connecting with our friends at Worksmith all around their community talks. This one is titled The Future of Restaurants Report, supported by our friends at Square, who have supported us in 2023. The food and beverage industry attracts fearless, resilient entrepreneurs who are embracing change. From blurring the line with retail to pushing the envelope with automation, restaurants are evolving and expanding in ways that will transform the experience for diners and staff alike. We have a fantastic panel on this podcast hosted by the amazing journalist and food writer Danny Vallant, is Matt Wiley from Re in Sydney, Kamala Shu Jensen, product specialist at Square, and good friend of the show, Michael Bisquetta, co-founder of Worksmith. This is an amazing chat. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Enjoy the next hour. Welcome to Worksmith Community Talks. It is always great to be in this room with wonderful guests. My name is Danny Vallant. I would first like to acknowledge that we're on the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to elders past and present and to any First Nations here today, any First Nations people here today, a special welcome. It is only a few weeks until I will very excitedly write yes as we vote for a change to the Constitution and an Indigenous voice to Parliament. We are here today to talk about the future of restaurants. Pretty big topic, I think we can all agree. One thing that I know about restaurants is that they exist in the present. Everything is urgent. It's happening now or in five minutes. The future can be hard to think about when the present is so challenging and occupying. But it's also true that taking time to work on your business is essential to ensure working in your business is worthwhile and on track. So I reckon, first of all, congratulations to all of you for taking the time to be here, to not just be lost in the daily and thinking about the big picture. What I love about these chats is that we have people from different areas bringing their expertise and insights, and we always find that questions are where a lot of the juice is, so I will leave plenty of time for that. Definitely have questions in mind. Our panel will be looking at what the next year and beyond might bring for restaurants and bars and how venues and roles will adapt, evolve and grow to meet the future. I'll quickly introduce the panel and then let each of them expand on my, what I've said. And Matt Wiley, at the, at the furthest away from me, he's turned parsnips into wine, he's making snacks out of scraps, his bar re is a sustainability change maker, avoiding the new to create something novel. He's here from Sydney, we've snuck him down here for a quick visit during the Melbourne Cocktail Festival. Camilla Shu Jensen works in product development at tech company Square. It's their future of restaurants report that we're bouncing a lot of today's insights and, and springboards talking points from. Michael Bachetta is a founder of Worksmith and has launched and run numerous restaurants in Melbourne, including Bar Liberty and Capitano. He's entrepreneurial. He makes drinks as well. No, not? <laughs> I wrote it. And endlessly supportive of the industry. For people who don't know me, my name is Danny Vallant. I'm a local food writer, host of the Dirty Linen Food Podcast, and really grateful to be part of a number of these talks at Worksmith, which I really respect and honour for their contribution to the hospitality industry. Also, just a quick thank you to Fishbowl, who are doing dinner, and there's refreshments from Homegrown, Grata, and Jaden Ong Wines. 
I'm going to just let each of the panellists do a quick intro of themselves. Michael might want to unpick this entrepreneurial <laughs> word that I've thrown at him. But Michael, let's start with you because it's also a very special week in Melbourne that you're going to tell us about. Thank you, Danny. I want to thank Danny. Can everyone applause, please. It's always a pleasure having Danny look after our community talks. It's got nothing to do with you being a Carlton supporter. Very proud of it. Though. I almost wore my Carlton shirt, but oh, I thought, no, this is going to live on YouTube. Who I wasn't allowed to happen. this week because Roscoe at the back goes for Melbourne and my business partner. So it's been a tough week for him. So Melbourne Cocktail Festival, we're in day two already. This is our fourth fourth festival. Somehow we've skirted around COVID and the like to deliver four festivals over four years, which is really exciting for us. This year we're working with over 40 bars across the week which is it's our biggest yet. I think it's around 15 events throughout the week as well. This is the first time we've got the Melbourne Cocktail Festival hub in the CBD at Double Happiness that we're taking over each night starting tomorrow where all bar safari ticket holders start to redeem their first drink. In your bags, there is a drink on us if you'd like to come along. The drinks are being curated by Darren Leaney, who's our head of product for Worksmith and is also in the bar tonight. Some of those drinks you're having, so the... The carrot cake milk punch is a bit of a revelation. <laughs> Super tasty. So really excited about this week. A huge thank you to Square being our presenting partner for this year. It's been phenomenal support from them over the last couple of years. So thank you. Terrific. Oh, Camilla, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I would love to. My name is Camilla. I work at Square. So yeah, we're happy to hear that we've been a tremendous support for you. At Square, I work as a product specialist and I work inside of the food and beverage industry. And what does that mean? That means that I sort of day to day talk to our sellers. So I sit in on calls, I hear on existing sellers, what are some of the struggles that we have? How can we really use your technology to help us grow at more parts to our business so we can add different integrations and different things. Also talking to completely new sellers who are talking to Square to see if we can help them dive into technology, help getting set up on technology or move from elsewhere. And then the sort of other leg of that role is that I communicate a lot of this back to the product team so that we make sure that what we actually are building is what our sellers need, at least as much as possible. <laughs> Fantastic. And I was, I was really quite astonished and impressed to learn that restaurants or hospitality is around 70% of your clients in at Square. It's Yeah, so it's quite a big part of our business is the food and all the hospitality industry that utilises our restaurant's point of sale and also our standout point of sale. Yeah. yeah, you certainly see it in a lot of restaurants, but yeah, I was surprised and yeah, it makes sense that you have a lot of innovation in that space, given that it's such a big part of your business. Matt, let's uh, hear from you. Thanks for coming to visit us from Sydney. Uh, my name's Matt. I've, I have a bar in Sydney called Re. Previously, I was uh, at a bar in London called Scout, and I moved here coming up to five years ago now. And Re's kind of dubbed this like zero waste bar, but I can assure you we're definitely not zero waste. But the goal for us is to get closer and closer to that every single week, and we discuss and analyse this on a monthly basis of you know, where we failed and where we've succeeded. Generally, we fail. But failing is a way for us to grow and improve all the time. But a part of what we also do is external from the bar. So we're trying to find solutions for other businesses' waste streams. And then ultimately, we're trying to find waste streams for all farmers in the eastern border of Australia to try and 
figure out solutions for all their waste because 30% of the produce never even leaves the farm. So the idea in the next five years is for us to be able to distribute all of that produce for free to hospitality venues, but we need people like Square to help us to get there in, in the future. Wow, I love the scale of your thinking always, Matt. But yeah, that sounds incredible. So you'll all be sent the Future of Restaurants report to digest. But having read it already, I thought we could break this chat into four subheads. They're interlinked and we'll probably cover number four while during number one. So we'll see how we go. But I want to talk first about embracing change, then about valuing community, then about the idea of visibility over everything, information that can be so powerful. And then, finally, the restaurant as a brand that extends beyond four walls. I feel like these themes really are really yeah, seen in all different parts of the Future of Restaurants report and I think are deeply relevant to anybody who's working in the hospitality industry. Starting with embracing change, one of the key insights of the report is that the biggest challenges for restaurateurs are customer retention, operating costs and staff hiring training retention. I think things that all everyone in this room is probably talking about all the time. Michael, I thought let's start with you and what you think about this insight. If these are the challenges, is change the solution? And if so, what? I think change is definitely the solution. And I think when these things you mentioned at the start, talk about restaurants are very urgent. Things happen very quickly. Everything's urgent every day. And when that is the case, it's very hard to look at challenges that sit on the edge of that and put time and effort into it because you're just trying to get to the next service, the next booking, the next whatever. It's constantly coming at you. So to stop and reflect is really hard. And I think when huge challenges happen, and I hate to bring the word up, but when COVID hits, something of that magnitude is that, and for me personally, when something of that magnitude happens or happened in, in the case of COVID, I thought I was quite okay with it for a little bit and I was like, I've got, this is totally fine. But I was actually just avoiding everything the whole time. That's why I was okay. And, but until you stop, unpack what's actually happening in front of you and be able to start focusing in on those items, especially what we're talking about in the report, is that you're not really going to be able to make any change until you recognise that there are problems. And the most important thing that I've just discovered over the time in hospitality is being able to make space for that. Because if you don't make that space to, to look at these key things, then you're not going to be able to progress day by day. Mm. And similar to Matt, what Matt was saying around what he strives and his team strives for at Re is getting better each month, reviewing it, assessing it and going from there. I've always had a similar ethos with my businesses, especially in the hospitality spaces. You might not open the best bar on day one or the best restaurant, but as long as you're improving incrementally each week. Because if you can achieve that, then over a year, that multiplies and compiles and then suddenly you turn around you're like oh shit I've actually gotten to where I wanted to get to and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes a lot of operators make when you're new to being an, an owner is trying to open a, a finished product and I hate seeing that when people are like oh I just need another three months till opening because I need to get this perfect design done and everything needs to be perfect on the day of opening if you do that you've got nowhere to grow and I think opening you know, examples around places like Bar Liberty or Capitano or any of the places I've operated is operating, opening from day one and being okay with imperfections. And I would say that from a fit out point of view, but also from your systems and processes that you can build over time to suit your business. 
because the other side of that is building people saying you want a business strategy before you open a venue. I think it's crazy because you write it and you literally throw it out because day one, everything changes. <laughs> I think so. Um, the, the market really decides what they want. So when you start honing in on problems, um, if you've got this set way that you expect your uh, business to go and then you hit for six because it hasn't gone that way, it's much harder to change course. So being really open to these, this change and, and going with it. Wow, that's such an interesting balance between – because you must have a project that you want to achieve or something that you're going for when you open something, but to have that flexibility built into your thinking, I find that maybe that comes with experience. But it also makes me think of the sign at Bar Liberty, just the spray paint over the old sign, which I think, yeah, speaks to that in a really visible way. It's still there like that, right? Still there. Yeah, I love that. Matt, there's a great quote from you in the report. I believe limiting your views to one thing actually makes you more creative. You've got a a really different model at the heart of re change is at the core of it how challenging is that to have change at the core of who you are for me i've been working on this kind of model of change daily change for 10 years when people start to work for us we have to unpick them a little bit and go your idea of coming to work in a hospitality venue is going to change forever if you stay working for us and it's not for everyone we've had people work for us for two we can go this ain't for me but we, I believe that we create individuals to work in hospitality and we're making people more rounded. No, no day at Re is ever the same. No day for any of us is ever the same, really, in any work we do because there's so many different factors of what determine your day. But when you come to the bar, like they, the produce changes, everything's always changes. There's, we work with waste, so some days it can be gnarly. Not really, but it can be. But predominantly it's pretty good. But... We're asking people to to create something that is not of the same structure as a classic cocktail. We're trying to get them to just to make something that's delicious and that's to take something that would normally go in the bin and make it desirable. And that's to some people who, who don't understand how to make that happen, that can be the biggest challenge ever. And in December last year, I sat down with my bar manager and I said, we're going to change the way it re-operates forever um, because what we've done previously was shit to be honest like we weren't as good as what we could be we were making mistakes and we were failing left right and center and i was like the way we do this is we we scale it all the way back and we did a lot of research into what were the 10 most wasted food items in the world and we picked them out and i said we're going to make everything from 10 ingredients and he was like i need to go for a walk i can't i can't can't, can't, can't even talk about this and he came back and he was like let's not talk about this let's not tell the staff until after christmas let them have christmas because they're going to freak out um, we came back after January and he was like, do you still want to do this? And I was like, 100%. I've, I've worked on it even more over Christmas. Uh, and we had a guy who is actually my bar manager now, Sam, and he, he lived in Perth at the time, so he was on Zoom. So he, he literally had no idea what was going on. And I told him, in, a, in short terms, basically we, I wanted to take bread and make 10 new ingredients with bread. Ingredients you would know you, you didn't taste like bread, but there were 10 new ingredients. So we... At the end of it, we would have 100 different ingredients and that would be our pantry to make 10 cocktails. And for me, that was the most simple, basic thing ever. But for them, it was like they thought I was nuts. But the end result, four months later, was like, this is incredible. We've, we've got this new insight to, we've thought about things differently. They've had to go do a lot of research and development. And, and now it's, it's a constant evolution of our menu. And we don't 
vary from those 10 ingredients. We make classics that are away from that because we operate in the opposite Commonwealth Bank and they like to drink classics. So there's certain things we have to do for them, and there's, but there's our ethos of the bar is this is what we do. And we're about to evolve into our next menu, which is keeping it the same way, but it's going to be Japanese-influenced because of the, there's a lot of sort of methodical ideology around food waste with Japanese culture. So we're going to shift it to give a new flavor profile. Wow, that's really mind-bending and exciting. I suppose when you, you have to bring your staff on the journey, but then they have to bring customers on the journey. Do you find that once the staff are engaged that it becomes an easy sell to customers apart from the Commonwealth Bank people? Or is that another part of the process? For us, it's, it makes hiring very easy because we, we have people that come to work with us that believe in what we do. So if we have a short team of five people, so when we, have, when we replace someone, we get 50 people that want to work there because of what, what we do. So we're very fortunate in, in our hiring process. But so when they come to work, they believe in the product, so they, they're all about it. And, uh, but on our menu... We actually don't talk about it. We, we, we keep it super simple. We're not there to, to be educators as such. We're not, we don't want bars are about going out and having fun, essentially. We want people to come, have a great time, leave happy, and then when they arrived and come back and, and keep the retention, what we're talking about. If someone goes, hey, is that made out of oyster shell? Then, we will talk, then we'll bore you to death for two hours. But, but yeah, we read the guest and we, we understand it. Like, generally... Thursday, Friday, Saturday is more of the educational time of talking to people. And then early week, four o'clock, it's, it's a cacao husk Negroni. <laughs> um, Camilla, you know, when we think about these challenges, so customer retention, operating costs and staffing, how do the challenges that your customers tell you about feed into product development? How are you inspired to respond to these challenges? Yeah, I think that we give them lots of different tools essentially through our software to do these different things. An example of a product we delivered was our restaurant mobile device. So essentially we heard from sellers that they were like, it's great, we have this perfect product and we can walk up and do that, but it costs us time to do. And it would just be awesome to have something super simple that I can go down, I can take orders from my customers, I can take payments, I can do everything in one or my staff can do that. So that's just one of the examples of a product that we've listened to our customers and, and developed specifically, which is quite unique compared to other things out there. And is there something that you're, you've listened to and you're thinking, okay, this is where we want to go next or we would love to be able to solve that for people? That's lots of things. <laughs> I can't talk about it all. But yeah, I think we just keep listening in and, and trying to hear what the customers want to do. I think one of the key things that we're seeing and we're talking about reinventing yourself as well is to add, you might be a hospitality venue, you're serving food, your restaurant. But then in these recent times, we've seen that, that businesses are really pivoting and they're starting to add retail products and they're starting to bottle up their sources and they're starting to do cooking classes and essentially what we want to do is we want to provide them with a full ecosystem of tools so not just being your restaurant you need a floor plan you need to be able to take payments but if you wanted to start being a retail seller or really start selling in different ways we provide you with those tools as well 
also adding like the whole online component to it. So if you want to do any online sales for your customers, we enable you or give you the tools to do that as well. Mm. So it's a, yeah, we keep iterating on all the things. When we're talking about change, and I think back to changes in restaurant culture, things that customers can get used to, things like surcharges, tipping on a pause, yeah, just even credit card, the way that we use credit cards. And I suppose pricing is something that businesses are always thinking about, especially now when we know that to such a challenge. One of the insights in the report that I thought was really interesting was actually good news that 83% of consumers say they would understand if their favourite restaurant increased their prices. I thought that was pretty... No, you disagree, Matt? <laughs> Categorically. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's 83%. We've tried to put our drinks up by $1 and, and we see that the sales of wine go up because they're cheaper. It's the, our clientele does not alike if we put it up. I guess like answer us very quickly, and we've had to drop prices down. We put a sandwich up to thirteen dollars from twelve, and we've stopped selling it. That was like a month ago. We've had to drop it to twelve. We, it's our guests are like brutal. So we're definitely the seventeen percent. <laughs> what do you think, Michael? I think it's a really interesting one. I agree with Matt in some settings, and depending where you are geographically it can definitely affect you i think sydney and melbourne is totally different my best friend owns a bar in melbourne called birdie and he has cocktails for 30 dollars on the menu and it literally i would love it if we could do that it would make my life so much easier but we're at 20 22 maximum and some of our drinks take three weeks to make and we literally cannot do it yeah i know that it's not just a sydney melbourne thing i've spoken to numerous cafe owners who are terrified to put a coffee up 10 cents because their neighbor hasn't i, th- I think s- CBD and suburbs are also changed the demographic of people that what you can charge and what you can as I think example for somewhere like Falco where it's retail food sales that was I'd always be on the side of we need to put up our prices literally there's a 7-Eleven next door that sells we're selling croissants for a dollar less than us <laughs> and guys we have to put it up and there's a lot of fear around it in that sort of quick sale environment where people go to get their lunch every day but depending on the item you can get a lot of like coffee is a big point of contention because people know exactly how much their coffee is they get one every day two a day whatever you bump that by 50 cents and you can get a lot of backlash even though it's costing us a lot more over the last three years to produce that coffee than it did from day one is if we're just eating that unfortunately and until it's coffee is one of those things where you have to go with the market and i'm I want to be against that because you want, we're buying extremely high-quality green coffee through our roaster. They have to buy that. They have to source it. Like the, the process to get coffee to a cup is incredible, yet the consumer's not willing to pay for that. Yeah, coffee is a luxury product. We just don't think don't pay of it for it like yeah. that. And I've just written about Chiaki, which is near here in in Collingwood, and it's a coffee a specialist coffee place. There's I think a dollar coffee, which mm-hmm. I I think celebrate that. It's which we, sh- we shouldn't all be paying thirty eight dollars for a cup of coffee, but we should probably be paying seven. Absolutely. So Camilla, there are a lot of insights in the report about 
if you are thinking about raising prices, what are some good ways to do it? Perhaps how might you not go about it? What can you share on that in that regard? Yeah, I think as a report states as well, it's really about being transparent and communicating with your customers. And, you know, to your point, if you're putting up your coffee prices, then communicating the value of that for your customers and really explaining. I think really the transparency is really important because if we just bump up prices and no one really knows about it, hey, what happened here? But yeah, I think that's one of the really key important yeah. I actually met a guy on Friday and had lunch with him and he told me he's, a, he's opening a new bakery in Sydney in, in January, I think it's going to open. And they want to showcase baked goods from somewhere that's a $6 croissant to a $10 croissant and they want to put them side by side so people actually get to understand the difference of product. Because side by side, there's no comparison. But if you're just getting the same one constantly from the 7-Eleven, that's all you understand. So if it's side by side, so they want to show six and ten dollar croissants and bread and all that sort of stuff to to get mainly to educate. They, they actually said they don't want to make any money. They just want to educate and to teach people about baked goods. He's, uh, he's a coffee roaster and he makes loads of money elsewhere. So <laughs> yeah, I love that. But I suppose yeah, some people are only going to pay six dollars. But I, I think yeah, at least they know what the ten dollar one looks like and of course some people can only pay six dollars if that everyone's living in in reality where a lot of people do need to watch what they're spending and um yeah it's not a joke for a lot of people to put up a coffee 50 cents it's remember chatting to one cafe owner who they had a couple that came in for their morning coffee and then they would come in for their afternoon coffee when they put the price up i think it was only 20 cents a cup they thought about it really carefully and decided to buy an espresso and explained that they were going to now have their afternoon coffee at home they were really sorry but that's just what they had to do and the cafe owner I think everyone's standing there crying but that's just what what was happening we're always coming up against those realities which perhaps actually leads quite nicely into community because all hospitality businesses are part of a community there's the community of staff within a business the, the hospitality community itself which I suppose we're celebrating tonight just by being here and then there's the community that you create with your customers For me, it just seems like there are more and more of these collaborations, these pop-ups, especially over the winter in Melbourne. It just felt like you could hardly go to a restaurant for its normal service. It was always there was a guest chef or there was some sort of feature. It was really fun. Matt, I know that you do a lot of this kind of thing. Can you talk about why you do it and what the value is in it? We do it quite a lot because it's like the cross-promotion of two different venues. But I think more so it's to learn. we, We get people to come into our space and the staff get to interact with someone who's totally different who with a completely different ideology to us but then likewise we get to go and teach what we do and our philosophy and but we also do a lot of things with the food markets and we collaborate a lot with other restaurants to take their waste and we're constantly I think it's a learning thing more than anything else and in the modern era of being having the information available to us all the time but there's nothing better than just like standing there and watching someone just like cook and make a drink and having that human interaction with someone what about you michael what do you think and especially also i know you're not in all the restaurants now but just that community of restaurants that you create as a group as well can you speak to that yeah, definitely. I think being able to, and I was linking that to Worksmith as well. Mm. Matt was saying before about when someone leaves their team, he's got a lot of applicants because they believe in the ethos of the brand. And I think that comes back to with what we've done with Worksmith over the last five years, doing talks like this, building that community helped a hell of a lot with the venues. And I've asked the question, why do you want to come work with us? 
oh, because all the community-based stuff in the industry you do through Worksmith, I never thought that would be a reason to do it. But yeah. for staff retention, it was – and attracting them was really important. So it was brilliant. But then in terms of the community around the venues, from a, a guest perspective, has been incredible over the last now seven years. And it was something that we honed in on really early at Bar Liberty because we always knew we'd open other venues in different sort of categories of venues. So a bakery, pizza restaurant, and really wanting to look at how do we build a community of people that would follow what we would do into other areas. So then you could interact with them on more than a once a month basis that you, would, cause you don't go to Bar Liberty every week, right? So having somewhere like Falco where someone could interact with you nearly every day is incredible and then you can build that base, that community base up. Now, if you've opened a restaurant and that's your core business for the foreseeable future, for me it's about how do you still have your brand as a touch point for them outside of your venue and obviously people have dived into this with retail offerings and take-home things through necessity, through COVID and people have continued that. And I think it's about choosing things that you might not necessarily make money from, but it's reminding them of you time and time again. Very simple things could be a piece of merch or whatever it is. And people are always astounded how many people buy Bar Liberty (laughs) t-shirts and things like that. But it's very nice because then, you know, they're pulling that on and they're like, they're going to think of your venue time and time again. Um, And I've had friends that have literally been in Ireland, semi photos of a hospitality worker wearing a Bar Liberty t-shirt that have bought it from here. And that warms the heart, obviously, but people attach to that and uh, brand and associate with that. And when you can get to that level of buying from a customer or a guest, then they're always going to support you in whatever you do. Yeah. And that makes me think of the Carlton Beanie climbing Mount Everest, that kind of thing. It's a pretty strong brand as well. Another thing that I thought of as you were speaking was a new cafe that's just opened, Square One Rialto. So it's a Mulberry Group cafe that's opened in a corporate space in the city. And their concept is they've got a seasonal menu of 10 dishes from 10 different chefs, Melbourne, Sydney, internationally. Those chefs contribute a recipe. Actually, Frankie Cox, who's here in row two, wasn't brave enough to be in row one. She's one of the first chefs to have a dish on there. So yeah, congrats, Frankie. It's a really great concept. But I think that is another way of building community where you're bringing awareness of other chefs' businesses, but also those chefs become part of a community. Their recipes will end up in a cookbook. They're also funds from the cafe go back to a regenerative farm that does really fantastic programs or operates as a social enterprise. But and even more than that, a story I heard about Victor Leong's got a dish on there, a, a northern Chinese stuffed lamb bun, and the chef's I didn't have experience in making that. So Victor's, oh, I'll come down and show you. So he spent a day in the kitchen and they're all there learning how to make that bun. And I guess they're building connection in that way as well. So I think there are some really creative ways of creating community, skill building, but I suppose making people feel like they're part of something. If anyone wants to pick up on that. But maybe I could throw to you, Camilla, because one of the – it ties into what you're saying as well, Michael, but one of the insights – in the report is that um, 41% of restaurant businesses will prioritise building customer loyalty and encouraging repeat business through marketing and branding. Can you talk about some of the other um, ways that people do that? Yeah, and I was thinking, obviously, what you're talking about, there's more the community together, but obviously the technology can then start giving you tools where you can start giving loyalty points, for example. So with Square, you can, rather than having a coffee cart, we can do this in a digital version and we start actually 
tracking on our customers and seeing what they're doing. And in that way, we're allowed or able to then actually give them additional rewards or even just reaching them, letting them know about these events that we do. Because that's one of the or one of the key issues is sometimes if you don't have that close connection to your customers or you don't know how to direct them, this is a way that we can really tie that in together. Um, and I guess one of the points as well, and, and one of the things that I talk a lot with sellers about is if they do have merchandise as an example, that's a really great way to incorporate that into a loyalty system because you don't necessarily give away a lot of products for free that will cost you money. But you can say, you know what, if you get, if you visit us 10 times or you spend X amount of money, we will give you a t-shirt or a hat or something. And that way you keep building on your brand as well. But yeah, and I think the loyalty system and the way that you do those things also just depends on your brand and how you want to utilize that. Yeah. Yeah, I think the hospitality industry, or certainly all the venues that I've interacted with or worked for or in, they're very can be very resistant to discounting or giving away for free. And I think if you build it into your business model from the start, that it's much more palatable. Whereas if you're going along, oh, we need to do some freebie to pick up business, it does feel like you're discounting your product. But if you're in a say a bar setting and from day one you know that there's a drink that costs you bugger all to make and okay that's my welcome drink for vips or industry people or people we just want to have a good time we'll give them a splash of this we know it costs 20 cents a pop and we have a bookend so we know what we, we can give someone at the start and know at the end you make him 20 cents um, ask darren leaney he knows on your recipes yeah or whatever it is like a low-cost product that is going to ultimately get people to stay longer enjoy more food and drinks that end up buying more and building that into your your program at the start allows you the flexibility as you go to to tweak it and see what's working and what's not and then you look at from a loyalty perspective it's a much looser loyalty perspective when someone walks in you're like ah there are my regulars that come in every friday night to have a cocktail and a pizza i'm going to give them that splash to start with and it's just bringing it's really from a i, I believe from a guest perspective it's allowing them to be seen and that's it because as soon as they realize that we know who they are and the person looking after them knows who they are the rest takes care of itself yeah i'd love to add to that because i think that's one of the the key things like when you come in as a customer and you and you're seen and they're like even they might know your name if not but know your order and give you that true true custom feel experience and i think matt you talked about it earlier today and like customers want to come in they want to see something cook for them and they want to have a great time and that sort of ties into that as well so if they can come in feel seen feel heard have a great time they'll come back because that's essentially what it's all about and Camilla, the report also speaks about other experiences that these businesses can offer. Can you talk about that and, and you know, how they can help to create that sticky customer? Yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit of that? Oh, just booking classes, tours. Oh, got it. Yeah. yeah. It's another way to interact. And I think it talked a little bit into what I said earlier as well in terms of adding, pivoting the way that you do your business, but doing, you know, your cooking classes, doing these tours and interact with your customers. And I think to, to your point and saying, yeah, having guests, uh, chefs come in and cook different things and, and implementing that into to the business model to give the customers a different way of interacting with, with your business. Mm. We've come to my third topic, which is restaurant as brand. And I think we have touched on that to some degree. But Michael, I'd love you to talk about it a bit more. You talk about brands like Falco where people are interacting multiple times a week and then perhaps Bar Liberty where it's less often. Do you have 
Can you talk about what can grow under one brand and how you know, how you might know when something's becoming saturated and you might want to think about spinning it off? Can you yeah, give us a sense of how you think about that? Yeah, definitely. I think some people go in the mindset sometimes that the brand that they own that is successful, therefore, should be repeated. And it's not always the case. And I think, as you say, if you continue to open the same thing again and again, the brand loyalty can actually fall away a little bit because suddenly the thing that you hold dear to your neighbourhood is actually available to a mass of people now. It's suddenly not as special. And that is very untrue of some brands. Definitely they've done it extremely well where they're able to replicate exactly the same experience. So somewhere uh, I've always been very envious of is Market Lane. Doesn't do an incredible job of that. You go to any Market Lane, you're going to get the same quality of coffee, the same experience. The fit-outs are different but in the same thread. Like they've always done a very good job of that. But then there's other instances where you might have a spin-off product out of your venue and then you suddenly want to call it the same name as your initial brand and that doesn't always work. So being able to have the confidence that product worked in your venue under that brand and maybe it needs its own life. Mm. And then if it can go and scale from there, it doesn't actually affect your first brand that you started. I think that's really important because it can get quite messy when you start just jamming everything under one venue brand when the and the original can really suffer is that something that you think about matt in terms of identity is is identity something that you uh ponder or is ident- does identity just spring from what you do every day we we've actually changed the way we market ourselves especially on on social media we've we've noticed that when we first opened and especially like pre pre-covid if we put a drink of a cocktail on that had nice ingredients, people would interact with it and it would go mental. Now, a cocktail is such a luxury item that we don't. We try not to talk too much about the luxury item. We sometimes put like a cucumber on as a side dish of something, and that's eight dollars to showcase to show people that you don't have to spend loads of money to come and have a good time with us. Because we've noticed that people go out and eat a lot more whereas they will go out and have cocktails once a week. And we want to show that there's a very thing that they can come and have and they can just come and eat with us if they want and have some sparkling water or whatever. So we, we generally, we've, gener- we've definitely changed the way that we market ourselves, especially on social media. Bit of a, seg- bit of a departure perhaps from this topic, but aren't people drinking cocktails more during, with their meals than they were in the past? For us, it's hard to pinpoint that because we are... A, pretty much a bar where people eat some small plates. I'm about to open a more of a restaurant-led venue, which is going to be the interesting point for us. Um, but, yeah, we'll figure that out as and when we go. But I think from speaking to other people in restaurants, there's definitely this period where people drink cocktails and then it's wine and then they might go back to cocktails. Defi- I, I still think wine is definitely the choice of alcohol during food. I don't, I, and I, I don't think that will change for a while yet. I guess we can put this under the change topic, but what do you think, Michael? You're, you um, create cocktails or um, drinks now. Are you trying to get them through the whole meal? Absolutely. Yeah. From a volume perspective, that's great for us. But I think, echoing Matt, definitely wine still the drink of choice whilst eating from what we see. But what we have seen is, is, again, what Matt is saying, we're seeing people 
start with a cocktail but pick it back up and finish with and the cocktail boom has been huge over the last two years that we've seen certainly in Australia than elsewhere in the world as well and people are more willing to explore different drinks throughout their evening instead of just having wine all night or beer all night or cocktails all night there's variation in an order and our cocktails that we sell through Worksmith are in a lot of different places so from a brewery to a pub to a licensed cafe to a restaurant even in some instances bars as well cocktail bars and we are finding interesting in really specific places like a brewery is that four people walk in a brewery there's always one or two that actually don't want to drink beer and they're just varying the types of drinks they're having and even a beer drinker will have a few beers then switch to a cocktail Mm. which you weren't really seeing that as much before I think consumers are being trained to try different drinks with different foods, especially through drinks pairings, which are so creative these days. Not, I often would go for a half non-alcoholic pairing and with a bit of alcohol thrown in and you just think you can limiting yourself to wine seems, yeah, seems a bit boring after a while. Let's move on to visibility, this whole notion of working smarter, not harder, which is something that definitely comes through in the report that everybody's looking to create more time for themselves to get that edge that you can achieve through data. So Camilla, I'd love you to pick this up. What are some of the key insights that tech can offer into a hospitality business? I think there's so much that technology can do. And I think it's really thinking about What's the basic need first? If you're a new seller, I think like Michael, you talked about, you might not know what your whole business strategy is, but you start with something and then you just add and elaborate on that. Obviously Square, you have your point of sale, you can sell products and we can do it that way. But adding on, maybe you also have bookings and you take your customers' details that way through. You want to integrate that onto to your point of sale and then that way you start just removing some of all these little bridges and like all of these gaps that is between all of your different systems. So how do we make it just run a lot smoother? So at the end of the day, we don't need to spend three hours trying to figure out where the money went. Did they go in that way or that way? We can actually just say, yes, this is the total amount we've got. This is what cart, this was cash. We can put that all into a an accounting software as well. But I really think, and, and with the sellers that I talk to, it really is in stages. Some people, some businesses are already mature. They know what they want. They say, yes, we need all these things and they need to speak together in as soon as we go live. Whereas others are like, I just need something really basic. I come from pen and paper. I, it's overwhelming for me to have all this. And I think it's really amazing how technology can be there for everyone in whatever they essentially need. I think just on that as well is choosing things that actually help because I feel like hospitality over its time, or since I've been involved in hospitality, I've just seen so many things come into the industry and for want of a better term, that kind of leech on the industry that and trying to convince you that we we need it. <laughs> and as an operator, you look at it and you're like, oh, that does sound pretty good and I maybe I'll implement that. And then half your team are like, what the fuck do we have this for? And <laughs> then on a Friday night, they're like, this has killed my service because I've tried to implement it and it's really hard. And if you don't have the chunk of management to help manage the tech that you've got that it's not you're not really getting the best out of it so really choosing things that actually help and I think that's for me the working smarter bit is choosing the tech that helps or anything whether it's product or Mm -hmm. service or whatever it is rather than trying to build all these layers of tech or whatever you're using into your business that over time you look back and you're spending thousands of dollars a month on potentially that's not actually giving you the return either because it's the wrong product for you or it's a great product and you don't actually have the people to manage it properly 
and there's lots of different things in reservation systems that you could get great marketing potential out of all these things, but you don't have a great if you don't have enough managers looking after it and inputting the data correctly or linking it up to the right other tech that you have, then it's wasted and you're spending that money. And it's another thing to think about. Yeah, and I think as well to, to just add to that, it's also about the, the technology to be easy and give you the data that you need. You mentioned as well, Matt, that you, when you started re and looking into the new menu, what are the top 10 most wasted products? So like, how do we find that data really quickly as well? And I think that's where technology can help as well to make these like business decisions to work more efficiently and be smarter in, in what we're even producing for our customers. No, I think as well, everyone's looking, the work smarter, not harder thing doesn't vibe with me well because I think everyone's trying to skip the hard work. <laughs> and I know I get it because I do the same thing all the time as well. I like, this new thing is going to help so much and inevitably doesn't. But I think doing both works yeah. smart and hard and you'll get ahead pretty quickly <laughs> and using the right platforms to get you there. I'm going to throw it open to you guys in a moment, so please have your questions ready. But Matt, you mentioned at the start that you need Square to help you with this problem of um, food that's wasted on farm. It made me think of something I saw at a trade show that I it was years ago but I never stopped thinking about it it was a Dutch innovation that would photograph bins and would analyze the waste that was put in it would weigh them analyze what was in them and then restaurants could look at that data and look at portion size or look at no one was eating their chips or why are we doing why are we putting salad on a plate whatever it was and the business it was like I think it was a hotel they saved eight hundred thousand dollars in the first year that they were using it the Hilton was it the Hilton you know about it yeah Hilton in Sydney it was an EPA called Bintrim Yes, that's it. Yeah, amazing. So what do you want technology to offer you that's going to help solve food waste? We basically need the technology for collate, collating all the data and that's so the, the back end of the system that we're trying to create. We basically need to geotag pretty much every bit of produce and where it comes from so we can track produce, we can see where people are sending it because we, we, the idea is that we will charge a service charge that will be able to deliver the produce and then whatever's left over then would get go into a part and distribute it to the growers because we believe that waste should be something that's paid for. We don't get anything for free. We pay for all of our waste because if we get it for free, we're the only person benefiting it from the circular economy. And if, if not everyone's benefiting, then it breaks down. So the idea is that growers need to... Waste needs to, be, to become a commodity essentially in the future but we need to be able to track out every last bit of it and yeah it needs a lot of technology to do yeah you have to put a value on waste because there is a cost to it it's only right that you sh- yeah it's it's sh- it's it proves the problem really to yeah that it's that it's unusual to pay for it proves why it's such a problem yeah we've we've, we've spoke to guys in the market and they were like you're the most mental person ever you want to pay for the shit we put in the bin and i was like yeah we do and and these are old boys who've been in the market. They're like 80 years old and they're just like, we just want to put it in the bin and go home. We just want to go to bed. We've been in the market all night. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to buy it. And they're like, yeah, but I just want to put it in the bin. And it's taken us two years to get to the point where they actually trust that we actually want to buy it. And we've had to spend a lot of time in the market just so they understand like what we want to do and where we want to go to in the future. And we're nearly there, I think. That's really exciting because, I mean, you'd, you'd have to be opening people's minds when you have those conversations over years at 4 a.m. or whatever. Well, you, there's, I remember this one guy and he, I spoke to him for half an hour and he was a cherry grower and he was, I think he was like 78. And he moaned at me for hours about how the 
pickers now get, got paid by the hour and not by the weight, so they ate all of his cherries and all this sort of stuff, and they eat the good ones and throw away the shit ones and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, and then I was like, all those ones that are cracked though, I want to pay for them. And he, he's like, why? But they're rubbish. I was like, yeah, but we, well, I'm just going to put them in a blender and turn it into liquid. And he was like, I don't want to talk to you. And he was like, he shooed me off. <laughs> and we went back three months later and with the with Luke, who owns Sydney Direct, who who's, grew up in the market when he was 15. And, and then the East facilitated a lot more of the, the conversations. And uh, and now we're, we're a lot closer to people like that. And they, they see the value in what we're doing because we've, we've started to put money in their pocket. It's just a lot of conversations, hey? It's, it's education more than anything. It's, it's yeah. change, just changing the idea and perception of what is good and what's bad. Mm, it's so interesting because you say your bar isn't about education, but then to get the produce into the bar in the way that you want, you do have to educate the people who are otherwise going to put it in the bin. It's a very fascinating space and not always depressing. There are good things happening. No, it's, as so, well. it's so much fun. The best times are like three in the morning in the Sydney market. It's yeah. the most weird place in the world, but also the most rewarding. I love that. Who's got a question for our panellists? Um, I'm sure they would love to know what you want to know. Uh, at the back. Okay. Uh, I guess this is a question for anyone that wants to jump in. But I guess how would you describe the journey of um, storytelling versus features and, yeah, pro um, pushing the identity of products or what you, yeah, for your, yeah, in each of your restaurants. So when you're promoting your businesses more than anything, yeah. Uh, I think for me, it's what Matt was touching on with Ree, it doesn't jam um, down people's throat the products they use or how they create them to create a great drink. I think in venues I've worked in or owned in the past, I've had a similar ethos of be the storyteller more than anything in terms of your whole restaurant and what you do in delivery of service, in delivery of food, in delivery of drink, put up the best possible drink or, or dish that you can and it might be written really simply with those ingredients and then if someone wants to hone in on a product, then you've got the knowledge and I think that's been the most important thing for me across whether it's in venue or through social media or website or, or what you're talking about. Whereas I think if you focus on an item and really bang on about it, it's like people want to know, but they don't really want to know. People want to go and have a great time, as Matt was saying before, at a, a great venue and know um, what they're buying into on the surface. But there's only a very small percentage, I'd say 5 to 10%, that are happy to dig f deeper. As long as your team are really well acquainted with, obviously, your ethos, the product, they could really dive into an item and know and pull it apart and talk to the ends of the earth about something. Or in, if you're serving a great wine, you can talk about terroir and the winemaking process and all this stuff, but most people don't care. And I think that's the linchpin in great hospitality is being able to know when to dive in and, and dive out. <laughs> what do you think about that, Matt? We were opening a new venue at the end of this year and we decided that we're actually going to be the opposite and we're going to tell story by mystery. And the whole ethos of the storytelling will be tan making things tangible and, and if it can't be tangible on social media, then we're not going to tell the story. And we want people to come and experience something for the first time, not experience it through social media first and then you and then experiencing it for the, se the second time when actually they come to your venue first. 
So we're going to try and change it a little bit. But our new venue is like 40 seats, so we we don't have to... Our catchment area of people is small, so we can probably change that. But ask me in six months, we might be plastering it with dishes. (laughs) (laughs) There was a question here. Yeah, in the white shirt. Thank you. Thank you, Floyd Muller from Monash University. I'm just wondering, what is dead? We talked a lot about the things that are going to happen, but what are the things that are not happening anymore? On the one, if somebody would have told me a couple of years ago, cash is going to be dead when you go to a bar or to a restaurant, I would have said, no way, and cash is dead. Then there are now people who don't bring their mobile phones out anymore because it distracts from their experience. Are mobile phones going to be dead? Deliveries, is that dead? What would you say is dead now? I thought the pina colada was dead and everyone's making them again now. I don't know anything anymore. I think things coming around in circles, cash is definitely dying. We have a cash box and we, tr- we try not to take cash because it's more of a headache for us to take the cash to the bank. Square's really unhappy about that. <laughs> really unhappy about that. <laughs> I, we, talk, we spoke earlier about change and how the industry is changing and, and it evolves and grows all the time. And I think... It's just understanding what is changing and what is dead and then working with those parameters and being a part of hospitality and how it changes and understanding and seeing it early and growing with it. Because if you don't, if you don't see it early enough, you just get left behind quite quickly. So I think it's just understanding what is the dead part of the, in- the industry and moving with it really quickly. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, I'm not sure if it's dead yet. Uh, but over the last sort of three or four years, we've seen a huge amount of venues open that have a singular focus. So one baked good item, we are, or we are a cocktail bar, we don't have anything else, or we are a coffee shop and don't have anything else. I think that's really has some great elements to it, mainly for the consumers or guests. But as operators, you start to realize you either need to scale the hell out of that into multiple sites to make it really work over the long term. Or you need to start adding other elements. I'm sure Matt will look at his P&L and be like, great that we have food because that helps out. Or wine, for that matter. I was actually going to say, I think cocktail bars are going to die. Yeah. It's, the, the, the model of a cocktail bar where you just drink cocktails. And yeah. I think we're seeing it already. People want to eat. Yeah, or definitely. If you don't serve food, people have to leave to eat because cocktails are a higher ABV and you get too drunk. So I think the model of a single cocktail bar just sells cocktails, is it will die. Yeah, and I think uh, especially in Australia, we've seen that over the last few years where people really seriously want to eat when they're drinking. And I just came back from a, a trip to the US, and that's you can't. There is a lot of just cocktail bars there, whereas here you just see less and less of that because people need to consume food throughout, as Matt's saying. And I think as time goes on, people are looking at their models and thinking, how can I clip the ticket per se multiple times? over a few hour period and if you've got a singular product it's extremely hard to do that because people go there have that and then okay what do i do now i go to the next place and people are definitely moving around less over the last few years where we'd have people come through the bar go to the restaurant we'd recommend a cocktail bar for them to go to they then recommend another cocktail bar and on it would go and we're just seeing less and less than that people are making a booking go to the booking have a cocktail have a wine have a cocktail go home yeah so you want to be able to carry them through that experience exactly. that they've come out for. Yeah. Have you got any insights, Camilla, from things that your customers tell you about things that are on the way out that they're just not seeing as much of anymore? No, not really. I think echoing 
what the guys here are saying. It's and I think for me it's really like that singular. And if you wanted to do just one thing, it's the scalability because it's really. And then again to that, not doing everything either. You don't want to get to a point where you do. Yeah, we do pizza, pasta. We do everything sushi in one place because that gets confusing as well. So I think probably those venues would be going out if you're doing too much as well. So it's like finding that middle ground where you do something that caters to your consumer and you do that really well. Um, yeah. I think it's about finding that balance. I've just been writing about doing a cafe guide recently and there's definitely a trend of cafes that are opening into the evening, sometimes with quite a different concept. So the coffee place um, that I mentioned earlier, Chiaki, reopens as an izakaya in the evenings with a sake focus. And in some ways you're paying the rent. There are a lot of the fixed costs that you've already stumped up for, so it makes sense. But I think it does. you do need to have the right offering and if yeah to bring your customers on the journey if they if you're going to transition from to that nighttime offering does it make sense i think another good example sun hands is another good example of that which transitions into a wine bar after being a cafe by day so yeah it's interesting i wonder michael if there if it's as you spoke about right at the start if it's that trying one thing and then tweaking tweaking or come to that fully formed vision with a business like that yeah i think it's really hard coming up with the full concept straight away, if you, especially if you're a new operator. And we've seen a lot of people try to go from day to night and generally they're really good at one of the things and then really struggle in the other. And I think those examples you gave, they're, they're great operators in both of those worlds and they can execute it really well. Yeah. And I think it's about having a port, like being able to walk into a space and not feel like it's a cafe at night mm. and vice versa, walk into a space during the day and feel like you're in a basement bar. So, yeah. so I don't want to be there. Yeah. Another good example is Lumen in North Melbourne, which their nighttime offering is really quite simple, but the space, I've actually been there at night, but I could imagine it being, yeah, working really well. But again, they're very experienced operators. Another couple of questions I reckon we've got time for. Yeah, here at the front. Kia ora. Just, I know, for me, looking at the past, present and future of hospitality is always people, right? And if you're not coming back to people, where are you at? and whether it's guests or staff and things. But I suppose looking on the staffing side, over the past couple of years, we've definitely seen a shift in dynamic and intention and lots of different things since essentially before COVID. We have a lot of greener staff, a lot of older staff have left the industry, lots of things like that. And so we are in an industry where we are seeing so many more green staff come through our doors day to day. It may not be their career, it may not be where they want to be, whereas maybe five years ago, that was the only thing that people wanted to do when they came through your doors. And so this is a huge shift that I've seen a lot as someone having to deal with it day to day, the same as I think most people here have. And it's very easy to sit back and be like, oh, back in my day or this and that, and we used to work harder or this and that. But the reality is that I think for a lot of it, we do have greener staff in our venues and we do sometimes have staff that don't show up as much or don't care as much or don't these things. And it's easy to just bludgeon that to the side. But I guess my question for you is how would you create a a net positive out of these situations where we are having to work harder in nicer ways. You can't throw a pan anymore. You can't do all these things that, yes, it may have happened five, ten years ago when we were all growing up in the industry and you learn real quick, but you can't do that anymore. So how do you create positive spaces for your younger staff 
to grow because we need a future for the industry and I think that's really important. I think this is, could be a yeah, whole panel, right? I think number one is like temporary expectations, which you've already said, let's greener staff coming in. And if it's for looking at something, a new venue, say, looking at a model that's going to work with very few high-level staff, right? And if you've got an existing venue, that's obviously really hard. So understanding what is really achievable from a food concept or a drinks concept with having key staff that can execute with a team of green people coming through. And for me, it's about getting them excited about the simple things. It's similar to that customer piece where you want to give them enough information, but not so much that they're overwhelmed and like, fuck, I'm at uni and I'm just doing this for an, an extra bit of cash. I don't need to know, you know the intricacies of the winemaking process, but I need to know where it's from. That's the kind of levels. And the way I think about it now, and I'm on the other side now because I'm out of my venues, but I think about it like having your staff tiered into areas of expertise and then ensuring that they have increased amounts of knowledge depending on what tier they're in and developing them up into the next tier into the next year based off that knowledge and again it comes back to what you're delivering to the the customer and I, I understand where you're coming from where five years ago ten years ago when you're so coming through the industry is that the expectations on a waiter was so high in these styles of venues and now we're all starting to bring our expectation down a little bit but we still want to deliver service up here food up here drinks up here so what can be done pre-service around whether it's batching drinks or the food preparation or whatever it is how do you deliver hospitality but a lot of the prep is actually completed prior and i don't mean that just from a drinks perspective or food it's what can you prep before that's going to make delivery during service easier from a service perspective and whether that's shortening the process in which how many steps you have to take to sit people, take their order, whether you're using tech, like what elements can you add that's really going to help you deliver the level of service you want to with less? For me, when we get new members of staff and we hit them with the expectation of we're going to give you a lot of information and we're going to hit you with so much in the next three weeks, are you willing to take that on board? And if they're not, they don't start working with us. But if they do, for me, this is the most rewarding thing about what we do as an industry. We get to take young individuals and, and upskill them. And you get people who, are, yeah, they're green, but they, they're willing and they want to work and they will strive and they'll graft because you're, gonna, you're giving them new skills. And it's so much better than having a jaded 30-year-old who's just like, oh, I'm coming to work to get paid because they want more money and they just want to leave at the end of shift. Like, we've, My staff now is a 21-year-old and three 24-year-olds. And it's the best team I've ever had because they're all in it together. They're like grafting together. They're learning together. And they just enjoy each other's company. But they're all at the time upskilling what they're doing. And they're learning new things. And for me, it's so rewarding for me. I think we've got time for just one more question. So you've spoken about the challenges with having to raise the prices as well as demonstrating value at the same time. And obviously there's things like raising a sandwich by $1 and then having to take it off the menu completely or losing half the coffees you would sell someone to an espresso machine. Are there examples of successes or times when this has actually worked when you've been able to like anyone has been able to communicate especially even like a menu-wide increase uh, and also show value that makes people stay 
I think sometimes a bit of a trick from maybe an example of the sandwich and maybe in more of a retail setting, something like Falco is actually not is actually getting rid of the item and just changing it, but just bumping the price. So people don't align the value with that product. Yesterday it was 12, but now it's 13, whereas that was a chicken sandwich. Now this is a XYZ sandwich. So the value exchange is different. Same with the, the coffee is way harder, obviously, because people order a latte, they want the fucking latte at the same price. But if it's a food item or a cocktail, it's, oh, I want to take, oh, I need to increase the cost of this cocktail by $3 to really make it work. And we sell a lot of it having the confidence to actually take it off, put a different cocktail on at the increased price, and then you will achieve the increase you need without hopefully too much backlash. Yeah, pretty much that. We, we did the same thing. We had a drink, we've got a drink on the menu. It's actually got chicken feet in it. And it sounds really weird and bizarre, but... I can't wait to taste that. <laughs> it, and it's, it's delicious, and it's basically just removing, using the fat from the foot instead of, of butter and caramel. But we, we can't make it fast enough. Uh, so it was $22 and we was like, fuck it, let's put it up to 30 because we we're trying to like actually put people off it a little bit. And now we sell more of it. I think in drinks, it's interesting. <laughs> I think there's a bit but of we, it. But we took it off and then changed a couple of the ingredients and put it back on and made it seem more luxury and put it on at 30. And we've done the same with one of our chicken sandwiches, actually. We, we, it was something and we changed it and put it up $2 and, and now it sells a bit better. So I think what Mike's saying is take it off, tweak it a little bit and see how it might seem like you're getting more value with the increased price. I think we better leave it there because you've got to eat and you've got to chat. But I'm sure if you have a question that wasn't answered, please uh, talk to one of the panellists as we mingle. I'm sure they'll be super happy to, yeah, give you what they can. Will you please join me in thanking Matt, Camilla and Michael? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Thank you so much for being here. Have something to eat and drink. It's been wonderful to share this event with you and with you wonderful people on stage. Thank you.